Hey, welcome to the Afikra podcast. Today's episode is one of our Afikra Forward Meza nights. What that means is there are going to be four presentations from four different people. Um, Nihal Abdel-Laftif, Ahmed Ashur, Usman Boot, and Maha Kamel. These are four separate presentations. Each of them are very short and are designed to try to get you curious about the things that they have been sort of looking into. This episode was originally recorded on July 4th, 2020 on Zoom. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for joining. Uh, my name is Mikey Mahanna. I'm going to be moderating today's uh, event. Uh, unlike other events, today's going to be a little different. We have four small yet filling Africa uh, Forwards um, that should provide a really nice, fun sort of cocktail of curiosity. Um, we have Nihal, Ahmed, Usman, and Maha on the call. And so it should be a really fun group. It's truly a global night uh, with uh, Nihal in the Emirates, uh, Ahmed in Bahrain, Usman in London, and Maha in going to be a fun mix of perspective. So without further ado, um, I think Nihal is up next. I hope everyone's doing well. Um, so I'm really excited for this presentation, just because I love sharing the stuff I like. Um, and I'm not a, an expert on this topic, so please, um, if you know anything, please do share. Um, if I make any mistakes or share wrong information, please correct me. All right, so I'm going to be speaking about a book that I read um, at the end of 2019. And it's called The Map of Salt and Stars by Zain Jukhadar. Now, um, the story is basically of a Syrian girl who flees the country during, um, or at the beginning of the war in Syria in 2011. And at the same time, there's a simultaneous story going on um, about a fictional character who accompanied the renowned geographer uh, geographer Idrisi, who I'm going to be speaking about, um, on his travels, and then eventually ends up in Toyota in Morocco. And these two stories are basically almost a millennial apart. I'm just going to go on a brief about Zayn Jukhadaj. He's, um, he's a Syrian-American author who's a member of the radius of Arab-American writers and American Mensa. The Map of Souls and Stars is actually his first novel, and this is something that I was fascinated about because the, the book was really, really, really good. So I can't wait to read the next one. Um, and it's currently being translated into 20 different languages. Um, he also has a new novel that should be published this year in November, and it's called 13 Names of Night. Cool. So why did I find this... Um, book interesting. Um, even though it's fictional, two of the characters were actually real. And I like geography, so um, it, was, it was really interesting for me. And I wanted to learn more about this character, even though like a lot of the story is made up. But some of the, I learned that some of the information was actually true and accurate. Um, so I wanted to learn more about him. So, Abu Abdullah Muhammad Al-Idrisi is 
a geographer, cartographer, and uh, Egyptologist, and he's one of the most renowned in his time um, in the medieval Europe. If you're not familiar with the word cartographer, it means the person who creates maps. Now, um, he was born in 1100 AD in Ceuta, which is a city that currently belongs to Spain. Um, and it is on the north coast of Africa. So back then it was part of Morocco. And um, in Amazigh languages, it was called Septa. And um, fun fact, Spanish is the official language in Ceuta at the moment, but Arabic Darja is also spoken there by almost 50% of the population who are of Moroccan origin. Um, so Lidrisi was a descendant of the Hamoudi dynasty that ruled the Caliphate of Cordoba. And after the fall of the city of Malaga, his family moved to Ceuta and settled there. He studied in Cordoba and started his travels around the age of 16. Um, and his first visit was basically outside of Spain and Morocco, obviously. It was to Asia Minor uh, or Anatolia, and currently that is the Asian part of Turkey. He also traveled to many parts of Western Europe, um, including Portugal, Northern Spain, the French Atlantic coast, and Southern England. And what he would do during his travels is that he would create detailed maps using the knowledge um, from first-hand experience and also information that he would get from merchants who traveled around the Muslim um, empire. He also followed the Ptolemaic cartography school named after Ptolemy, who was a Greek um, geographer. Then, um, because of his reputation and how um, he was really good at creating these maps. He was invited to live in Palermo. Um, he was invited by Roger II, who was the Norman king of Sicily, and he worked with him as a cartographer. At that time, um, the Normans were trying to keep control of the region, so they were targeting groups like the Fatimids. Um, there were also conflicts between different Amzil dynasties um, in that area, including Al-Murabids and Al-Muhads. And those, those conflicts were actually mentioned in the book, the map of Golden Stars. And um, I really couldn't find enough resources on why the king decided to hire Lidrisi to work for him. But because Sicily was located in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea at that time, and it was an important trade route, um, it's probable that he wanted to have, you know, the most information he could get to actually control the route better. What he worked on was two of his most famous works um, that he worked on in the court. The first is the world map, um, and he actually stayed in Sicily for 18 years. So. King Roger hired other scholars to help him with this, and he completed a full world map that was eventually engraved on silver. And he divided the world into seven climates, so with their lands, watercourses, and their inhabited or uninhabited lands. And there were three stages to constructing this map. The first was to collect the data from both oral and written sources, 
and testing it um, to confirm the, the authenticity of the information. And second was to gather the information on a drawing board called Lohat Tersim. And the last part was to transfer the data carefully onto the silver desk. Now, unfortunately, both of the map and the drawing board don't exist anymore. Once he was done with the map, um, the king actually asked him to create a book that would serve as a commentary to the map and um, basically provided a lot more detail on the specifics of every region that were missed out um, on the map. So the book is called The Book of Roger and that is the name it's known with in Europe. It was also called Kitab al-Rujari or Kitab Nushat al-Mushtaq fi Ikhtiraq al-Afaq, The Journey of That Who Longs to Cross Horizons. That is actually the name that I heard before. Um, and the book is basically a combination of 70 maps of the different regions of the world. So basically it's a, it's a breakdown of the full map. And it really entails a lot of details regarding lands and countries and um, the inhabitants of these lands, their possessions, um, measurements of seas and mountains, um, crops and revenues, buildings, all kinds of things that made this work um, one of the most exhaustive works that um, were in the field of cultural, physical, and political geography. And um, yeah, so basically um, those map and the book basically had um, a lot of detail about the entire regions of um, the world that existed at least back then. So that included parts of Africa, Europe, um, especially Southern um, Europe, and some parts of Asia. And after this map was completed um, in 1154, the king died, and Al-Idrisi continued to work at the court with his son, William I, before he returned to Seora, where he died in 1165. And in Theota, you can actually find a statue of Felidrisi holding his book. And something interesting that I read is how the statue was facing the ocean um, to show like how the ocean was used by travelers going between different um, continents and how that actually helped him create those um, maps. Another interesting thing I found is that Clark Labs developed a um, geographic information system and named it after the IGC. It was first released in 1987. And Clark Labs is dedicated to research and development of geospatial technologies. And it's best known for this um, software, which is called Idrisi GIS. At the moment, it's, um, the, its name changed to Terrasat. I'm not sure which year. It was changed, but basically this system um, offers tools for researchers and scientists um, who are engaged in analyzing earth systems, 
to help them in making decisions regarding environmental management, allocation of resources, and development of sustainable resources. Um, so yeah, I, I think this was one of the most interesting things that I found about it. And it shows how, how LSJC was really um, known for his work to have like a, a whole software named after you is really interesting to me. But yeah, that's, that's all. And uh, if you have any questions, I'd love to have them. I'm going to share some resources. Um, there's, a, there's a book called The History of Cartography. Um, and there's a whole part about the work of El Idrisi, which is very, very, very detailed. So if you're interested to learn more about um, like how, how he created everything from scratch, how um, like the whole process, what kind of cartography, um, cartographic school he, he followed. And uh, it's, it's just really like a very rich resource, resource. And I think if you're interested in geography, this is a must read. And I found also this um, YouTube video where it shows a copy of the book. And uh, I'm a fan of books, obviously. So um, I think it would be really cool to check it out. That's all. Thank you, everybody. Great. Um, let's see. I think we have one question from Ahmed, um, uh, Ahmed Khalifa, who says, is the book of Roger to be found somewhere nowadays? Where can, where can we find this book? I'm not sure that you can actually find it because um, while reading um, the, the part about the LGC, um, it was saying that you can't really find a copy of the book. Um, but I'm not sure because I've also like did my own research and I couldn't find anything. There's actually not much resources about LGC's work in general. Um, so that's a shame. Could you go back just while before we switch? Can you go back to the past ref, the other references just yes. in case anybody wants? Yes. Just as a plug, there's so much information on cartography and sort of map making and a lot of these early mathematicians. And so, if anyone here is like remotely curious about looking into this, there's so much to look into. And so, hopefully. And Nihal, you got them hooked, and somebody wants to dive into this. I hope so. <laughs> we have one last question before I switch. Could you talk about the aspect of the non-Western orientation of the maps, placing the south on the top? I actually did not understand pretty much why the, 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 like the southern part of the world was actually on the top. Um, it is mentioned that that's how he created it, but I'm not sure why. I don't think that this was actually like a political statement at, at the time. Uh, you know, it was just um, like there's no right way of doing it. And um, so this, but it, it does, it does, it's amazing. Let's move on to the next one. And then at the end, we'll have a little time for open, open uh, questions for everybody. So, Ahmed, I think you're up next. Thank you, Nahal, for an amazing talk.
Um, and I want to thank you all for uh, wherever you are. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I really appreciate you tuning in, especially if it's a national holiday for you. Happy 4th of July. Um, I do want to say if you are celebrating the 4th of July, just take a moment to think about why and what you are celebrating exactly and whose independence are you celebrating because um, it the first if from one person to another um i want you all to take a moment and think about your earliest memory of reading a book nothing too complicated actually if we can all maybe like i don't know take 20 seconds quickly in the chat uh, everyone just like quickly write down the first sentence that comes to mind. What was your earliest memory of reading a book? I think we can all relate to that very first experience of reading a book, whether the first book that you read was maybe, um, you know, at least speaking in the Arab world, the first book you read was a book of Jahiliya poetry, Umru uh, al uh, if any of my Bahraini people remember from high school Arabic, um, whether you are thinking about Fan al Maqama, you're thinking about Badr Zaman al Hamadani, whether you're thinking also about, uh, I don't know, maybe some more contemporary writers, maybe you're thinking about an uh, Am Kachachi, or maybe you're thinking about Ali um, Badr, all of whom are from Iraq. And the amount of wonderful literature and knowledge that is in our hands, that is in our hands as we read a book, whether it's in Arabic, whether it's in English, whether it's in any language that we, um, that we speak, that we understand. Um, and I also want you to take a moment to think about what happens when a lot of that literature is um, taken away from us. Uh, maybe a little bit of a, of a visual cue here is um, a lot of this literature disappearing, uh, being burnt down, being taken away from us uh, by certain variables, certain forces that are outside of our control. That is exactly what happened on February of 2015 when the University of Mosul in Iraq uh, had its library, the central library, burned down by um, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, uh, or the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. Uh, it, and one of the most important libraries in the Arab region and in the world taken down, um, taken down by, the ISIS for, by ISIS forces. Obviously, this traces its, itself way back to um, the fall of Mosul in uh, June 4th, between June 4th and June 10th of 2014, uh, when Mosul fell to the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. And today what I want to talk about is Sort of what is this act of remembering the things that we lost in the fire, remembering the culture that gets lost in wars, remembering the books that were with us, rarities, books that have been there for centuries. As you know, the Arab region is credited with creating a lot of scientific, mathematical, um, mathematical advancements. Uh, we, like, our, like the Arab world is responsible for a lot of that, uh, for, for that initial... Uh, literature and what happens when we take away a lot of that initial literature. So I was very interested in learning about um, one of the most important libraries in this region, how in the matter of days, it, the entire collection, uh, a lot of the collection in the University of Mosul's library was uh, burnt to the ground. Um, and so uh, we need to start out by thinking about what actually happened. Uh, sorry. Um, 
slides are doing a thing. Um, so it all starts out uh, with obviously the fall of the fall of Mosul in June fourth. Uh, between June 4th and June 10th of 2014 when uh, the insurgents attacked uh, Mosul as an act of vengeance when the Iraqi army killed um, uh, killed the leader uh, killed the leader of the um, of the ISIS forces at that point um, if my if my research is correct I think it's El Bilawi um, and the ISIS forces actually, fought back and went into Mosul as an act of vengeance for their leader. And they were actually outnumbered by the Iraqi forces, uh, Iraqi forces and Iraqi military and the police forces at the time. Uh, some people say that it was around a ratio of 15 to 1, actually. Um, but after six days of fighting, uh, Mosul did fall. The, the Mosul airport uh, was, uh, uh, the ISIS forces took over control of uh, the Mosul airport. And all of a sudden, they had military control of the city and led to thousands of refugees um, fleeing the city as a result. Um, now, remembering the actual library at the University of Mosul, it was established in 1921, and it was also almost symbolic of the birth of modern Iraq. It had a lot of books, his, uh, books, historical maps, manuscripts of all sorts of uh, topics, disciplines um, that range from science to law to, art, to the arts to philosophy, um, some of them dating back centuries, some even millennia. Uh, we're talking here about one of the, the prized possessions of uh, the University of Mosul's library was a ninth century copy of the Quran. Um, which was which was lost uh, when ISIS forces burned down the library, um, and again, a, lo a lot of these books were in Arabic. Think about how much original Arabic manuscripts were lost uh, were lost in the fire, as well as contemporary twenty first century uh, books in English. Um, and so, a lot of these collections were lost in the, uh, were lost when ISIS forces burned down. Um, the library. We're talking here roughly around 112,709 manuscripts. Um, we're talking 112,709 manuscripts on, uh, and books. Um, some of them were registered as UNESCO rarities at the time. Um, we're, we're, uh, reports say that ISIS militants actually constructed a huge pyre of a lot of these scientific and cultural texts uh, while some of the university students watched. Uh, due to the fact that they were trying to keep warm um, uh, during, uh, during the cold winter months and um, not knowing the rarity of the books that they were actually burning. A lot of damage was noticed to the Sunni Muslim Library, the, the library of the 265-year-old Latin Church, um, the Monastery of the Dominican Fathers, uh, the Muslim Museum Library. We saw a huge loss to a lot of these connections, as well as Interestingly, getting a lot of the university professors and actually having them rewrite textbooks for a new Islamic curriculum, because um, a lot of the books that were in the collection at the time were filled with things that perhaps were, weren't very, um, weren't very, um, uh, you know, were not very kosher, um, if you will, with uh, ISIS forces at the time. So we're talking about books about philosophy, about culture. Uh, a lot of that had to be rewritten for uh, to be more um, acceptable, uh, if that makes sense. Um, and obviously, having a lot of the workers 
uh, a lot of the workers in the library locked up in the first floor of the, it, it was a four-story It was a four story building, uh, locking them up and having them print IS propaganda pamphlets and, and distributing that. So having that be sort of a center of operations for ISIS propaganda. So you can imagine only a, a, the library going from a place of a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of uh, information being turned to almost this uh, factory of, um, this factory of, of, information that uh, that ISIS wanted to uh, spread out to the Iraqi people. Um, so here's a video. Um, you can see sort of uh, what happened after the, um, obviously, uh, trigger warning for, uh, or content warning for what is a very brutal destruction of cultural sites and um, important locations in Iraq. So as you can see, this is, uh, this is Tahani Saleh. She is a, she's a, she was a master's student at the uh, University of Mosul at the time when uh, ISIS took over the city and burnt the library. She was actually one of the first people that spearheaded an effort to uh, rebuild the library uh, and uh, save as much of its cultural resources that were um, saved from the fire, if that makes sense. Um, it is... It's a very saddening video um, to look at. You can see a lot of the books are uh, burnt to ashes. Um, a lot of it is irredeemable. The infrastructure has to had to be rehabilitated, as you can see. Um, and it, it it definitely is um, a difficult watch. She she talks about how this uh, Tahani in the video. She talks about how um, this loss is not just uh, you know uh, something to blame on ISIS necessarily as uh, also something to uh, blame on the international community as well. There are historical uh, events that actually led up to this, uh, that, that actually led up to this, that this has historical um, precedent almost. So we're talking about the burning down of the uh, National Library and Archive in Baghdad during the 2003 Iraq War. Uh, we're talking about centuries, centuries of um, people going into Iraq and burning these Beautiful, brilliant manuscripts that contain the culture of uh, that contain the culture and the knowledge of the entire region, not just the country. Um, and so, what is being done? Uh, the library is currently in the process of being rebuilt. Uh, actually, um, a lot of a lot of international foundations uh, and and. Uh, universities, seemingly a lot of them in the UK is what my research uh, found, um, are actually. Uh, Pitching in in the efforts of rebuilding the library, uh, a lot of universities in the UK have started something called the Library Fines Foundation. So basically, they take fines from uh, people who are late on returning books to the library, and they donate those fines to um, to the University of Mosul's uh, rebuild efforts. Uh, a lot of books were actually saved, which is really awesome. So roughly, uh, so uh, Tahani and her team of volunteers uh, of students from the university as well from the community were able to save roughly 32,000 volumes and were able to move them to a safe location. Um, we're also talking about the book in Aid International, uh, which started an effort to provide books to the library. So a lot of books are being donated from international foundations, international libraries, and being sent. So the first shipment of roughly 4,000 books was uh, was sent in March of 2018, so fairly recently, um, and the rebuild the rebuild efforts are, are are still going on. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find a lot of current resources on what actually is being done today uh, to support those to support those efforts. And in fact, actually, you don't see a lot of news coming out 
um, about the rebuild efforts of the university recently. However, um, Mosul was taken back by the Iraqi government in 2017, and those efforts have been underway. Um, so maybe a potential topic for a future forward or a feature. Um, and it is important to note that a lot of the uh, books that are being donated right now to the library are in English, when a lot of them in the past were um, in Arabic, French, English, Italian, Portuguese, Kurdish, Turkmen. Um, so many of these books, uh, again, lost, um, lost. Uh, this, is a uh, this is a photo of the volunteers, uh, Tahani is between them, uh, who went in, uh, took out a lot of the rubble, were able to save a lot of the original manuscripts, um, and the efforts are ongoing to this day. Um, there are also news of professors from the university even dancing in the streets when they first got the first shipment um, of books from book, uh, from book Aid International, because it was a moment of realizing that, oh my God, we're actually going to start rebuilding uh, the the cultural site that used to be here before it was torn down by by the war um, and so where do we go from here uh, again suggestions for future uh, features or forwards um, the destruction of the Iraq National Library and Archive in Baghdad during the 2003 Iraq war uh, wondering what was lost there what were some of the things that um, that you know were forever taken out of the archives of history um, when that happened and also something that uh, was really interesting that I found in my research was that uh, a local report claimed that um, residents saw roughly around 2,000 books being, uh, pu uh, being pulled, put into six pickup trucks by ISIS forces, uh, into pickup trucks that had Syrian license plates. Um, and a lot of those books were sort of uh, driven away, never to be seen from the library before it was, before it was burnt down. So I'm kind of interested in asking where do where did those books go? Uh, where are they today? And sort of how can we actually get back some of that culture um, that was uh, that was unfortunately lost? So to conclude, um, there's a very common saying that says Egypt writes, Lebanon publishes, and Iraq reads. Um, and so um, Irina Bakova, who is the who was the chairman of the UNESCO um, at the time that all this was happening. Um, has this really awesome quote uh, that this destruction marks a new phase in the cultural cleansing perpetrated in regions controlled by armed extremists in Iraq. It adds to the systemic destruction of heritage and the persecution of minorities that seeks to wipe out the cultural diversity that is the soul of the Iraqi people. Um, the, again, this was back in 2015, and we've seen a lot of efforts being done to actually rehabilitate that. But something that I want to sort of leave all of us with is this idea of how does Africa actually fit in and this idea of conserving a uh, culture that is constantly being lost due to variables such as natural disaster, wars, um, things that are out of control of the people that are actually the, the guardians of that knowledge and that culture, some factors are out of their control. And so for me uh, and for us as Africa community in general, uh, part of what I see this work doing is conserving that culture um, and maintaining it in forms of this digital archive um, that, hopefully, uh, that hopefully will last for years and years to come. Um, and again, it's on us to sort of ask those questions uh, that Africa is asking us to ask, sort of the, uh, or not, it's asking us to ask questions. <laughs> um, I'll leave it at that. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's on us to sort of be the guardians of that culture that we uh, very dearly hold on to, um, especially as we face different um, forces that try and rip it away from us. 
Um, and so with that, uh, please talk to me more about it. Uh, my email and the Insta and the Twitter and all the things are thrown up on the screen. I'd love to uh, take questions. Without further ado, thanks so much. Um, I'm going to pass it over to Maha. That was fantastic. Hi, everyone. I'm Maha. I recognize a few of you guys on here, but hello to everyone else. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about Doria Shafi. She's a famous Egyptian feminist icon that is actually not very well known, both in Egypt and abroad. So um, I'm pulling this from an article called Overlook No More, Doria Shafi, who led Egypt's women's liberation movement. And it's actually from the New York Times segment called Overlooked. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, a couple of years ago, the New York Times, which is a major newspaper in the United States, uh, decided that its obituaries were filled with too many old white men um, and that they were featuring too many old white men that had died in their obituaries and they really wanted to diversify who they talked about. And so they kind of opened the books of history and decided to pick a few people um, and write about them. And one of those people was Doria. Um, so the New York Times kind of regretted not printing her original obituary when she died, and they finally printed one for her in 2018. And just kind of on this note, um, the New York Times actually still has an open comment section about if you think there's anyone in history, Arab or not, um, whose kind of obituary has ever been overlooked. Um, it might be worth emailing the New York Times and, and kind of getting them on there. I'm sure someone did this for Doria and it was really worth it. So here's the article itself. Um, and this is kind of what inspired me to do the forward because as an Egyptian American, I actually had never heard of Doria Shafi, um, although I'm pretty interested in women's history and, and the feminist movements globally. So, um, so Doria was born in 1908. She was born in Tanto, which is a smaller town in Egypt. And then she later moved to Alexandria, her father was a civil servant um, in the Egyptian government um, and just for time frame period wise um, Egypt was obviously going through a lot in the 50s um, pre um, independent governance and so uh, she moved around a lot and then when she got to the end of her preliminary schooling she was told that she could no longer continue schooling because she was a woman which is something that of course many Egyptian women um, experience and something that really rattled her and and she thought you know it was kind of ridiculous particularly because she was one of the smartest people um, in her class so um, at this point she decided to reach out to Hoda Shaarawy who is also another famous Egyptian icon um, not necessarily in the feminist lens, um, but was, was kind of well known for her, her elite status. And she did start a feminist union, um, but it was very much tied to um, less the freedom of women and more political freedom from um, colonialism. Um, so she reached out to Hoda Shadowy and wrote her a letter and said, you know, I really want to study and I really deserve to study. Like, please help me realize this dream and so Hada Shadawi was able to kind of push her forward for a government scholarship to study at the Sorbonne in Paris and so that's where Dorio ended up going um, and found a lot of her life's work and purpose there. Um, so once she got to Paris she entered the Sorbonne and, and you know learned a lot from kind of a western lens um, and upon returning to Egypt she um, you know was struggling to kind of find her place in society um, something that Doria talks a lot about is her middle class background and how that didn't really fit in with the elitism that came with Egyptian, the Egyptian feminist movement at the time. Um, 
so the thing that she did that was really fascinating was she entered Miss Egypt, which is a beauty pageant. Um, and what was remarkable about her entering was she was actually the first Muslim to enter. And so the beauty pageant was really focused on Westerners entering or, or Coptic Christians, and there was never a Muslim um, to enter the first time. So she won runners up and, and this kind of shook her community in the sense of, you know, how could a Muslim woman um, enter this pageant? Um, and so after doing that, she um, completes her PhD and then she comes back and she gets married and has two kids. And, and during this period, she, she starts two mag magazines. So Bintin Neel um, and La Femme Nobel, which is fascinating because I think these two magazines really represent the kind of split in both her life and her personalities and, and the ideas that really founded um, her view of feminism is kind of this um, traditional, the daughter of the Nile, her middle-class upbringing and kind of this new woman, new era, the opportunity for her to study kind of in, in France. Um, so after she took over Le Femme Nouvelle, she um, took it over from the first wife of King Khoed I, um, and then she did, decided to create Bintin Neel. And what was fascinating was Bintin Neel actually became um, a union which focused on a space for women um, to advocate for her political rights. And then the reason she she kind of started or converted Bintin Neel from a magazine into a union was she was met with a lot of pushback from um, the union of Egyptian women that Hoda um, Sha'arawy had founded. And the reason that being was Hoda um, Sha'arawy saw Durriya as not elite enough to kind of enter this sphere. Um, and so we can constantly see Durriya kind of running into non-intersectionalism in her, in her, uh, her attempts to kind of find feminism in Egypt. And, and so that really pushed her to create this space for kind of women from all over Egypt. Um, and then we get to 1951, which is what Doria is actually most famous about. And um, what fascinates me as an, a, a person who has, you know, family in Egypt and a mom in Egypt is I would have never known or I never knew that Doria is actually single-handedly, we should thank her for giving women the right to vote in Egypt. Um, so in 1951, she her most famous activity that she did as a feminist was um, run a feminist Congress. And... Um, she basically took 1,500 other Egyptian women and they stormed Congress or par Parliament on that day. Um, and essentially, she held Congress for four hours and refused to leave until they listened to their demands. Um, and this kind of played a key role in ending not only British rule in Egypt, but also bringing a lot of those demands uh, forward during that, um, that end to British rule. Um, and a notable thing about this is something that Doria talks about in her book is you know, it wasn't, the way she focused it was, it wasn't that I'm, I'm storming Congress. She famously says that um, there was actually two Congresses happening at the same time. One where 50% of the nation um, wasn't included. And it just happened to be that on that day, both of those Congresses were at the same place at the same time, which I always thought was really fascinating because she always kind of, you know, saw her place as a woman in society as, crucial and not as an ask or a need. Um, so um, she later goes on to, to you know, we, we don't see immediate wins kind of from that ask after the, the storming of Congress, but after several years and, and most notably the, the end of British rule, um, we begin to see um, some of those demands be taken out. And, and most notably four years later, women were given the right to, um, to vote. And so uh, that was kind of a huge win for Dorilla. Um, all, and then obviously at the end of her timeline, she um, 
there's a fascinating split in her life where she essentially um, went from being in the spotlight as a, as a feminist icon in Egypt to kind of um, going um, into solitude. And, and a big reason she went to solitude was um, her criticism of Gemara Abdel Nasser. Um, and, and that led her to do a hunger strike, which is also famously one of her most notable acts. Um, she uh, held that hunger strike for several days. Um, and eventually in 1975, she actually died of suicide, most famously falling off a balcony, um, as actually many other Egyptian women have. Um, and maybe possible future Africa topic. Um, and most notably in 2018, Google actually dedicated a, a doodle to her. Um, so, you know, nowadays, um, many modern Egyptian feminists have attempted to kind of um, rebuild the independent feminist movement, especially in Egypt, and, and keep Dore Shafi in her mind. Um, but this is a picture of her um, breaking her fast after the eight-day hunger strike after um, her denouncing Agamed Abdel Nasser. And then this is the Google um, doodle that was dedicated to her. Yeah, so these are a couple of the resources. Um, I, I learned about her through the New York Times obituary um, and later through a book by Monica Haley that talks about her, but um, there's a whole digital collection by the American University in Cairo. Um, the AUC Hall um, is actually where the parliament was in the 50s, and so um, there is also a, a, a monument there for her. Um, and then um, Egyptian Straits wrote a great article about her, and then there's um, lots of case studies kind of on the role of protest in feminism um, and kind of her role in the women's movement. Um, that's it. Well, I will stop sharing now, but if you guys have any questions, you can find me here. I don't know, Mike, if you want to do um, I think let's, if it's okay with you, let's do questions at the end. Um, okay, let's go to Osman. Um, this one, uh, I'll make a plug about your phone as well, and then oh. take it away. Yeah, so thank you to my three other, three other people who gave presentations. It was very interesting. Um, so I wanted to do this particular presentation. Uh, how do I play it? Oh, it's good to take the slide. So, oh, sorry. so this is the book I've chosen to do. So this is a book that was produced in the 8th century sorry, 9th century Iraq in Basra called The Animal's Lawsuit Against Humanity. Um, and it was produced by a very mysterious sect, which we're going to go into now. So the book, um, we're going to come on to the book in a minute, but just one thing I wanted to mention here, and this is something I'd like to do a further presentation on, is during the Abbasid Caliphate, you saw the rise of various cities and Basra's rise is quite interesting because it became the home of what I would call radicalism in terms of you know alternative spirituality, political movements, there was all kinds of interesting things going on in Basra at this time and one of the interesting things that came about in Basra during this time was this movement, the Brethren of Purity. And the thing with the Brethren of Purity is they're very, very influential in early Islamic thought. However, we don't know much about them. That's how influential they are. We don't know anything about them. <laughs> but they, um, they produced something called an encyclopedia. They produced an encyclopedia, which is on a whole host of different things, different issues, topics, mathematics, uh, spirituality, of course, astronomy, all kinds of things. 
So they are a really important movement, uh, but all we know about them is from this encyclopedia. Um, they were, it's an interesting time to be in Iraq at this point. So Iraq during this period, sort of Basra during this period was, we all know about sort of the golden age and so on. But what we know less about, or what people tend to talk less about, is the fact that Baghdad, Basra, became places where ideas came to meet. So Basra was really, so you had Hindu philosophers, Buddhist philosophers, as well as Christians, you had Greek philosophy, all being debated in Basra. And there was a reaction to this, and what you started to see was the development of various philosophical movements, um, with this one, the Brethren of Purity, being one of them. And so they take a lot of influence from early Hindu philosophy, but they sort of created, a, they sort of Islamify the ideas, it sort of becomes part of Islamic discourse. And if we talk a little bit about, I mean, this movement, they believed in mathematics, symbolic language, I can't actually see what this is. They believed in geometry, they, all kinds of things. Believed in graduation theory, um, organisms evolving into other organisms and so on. But the thing that's most relevant for us, for this story, is they believed in this idea of the universal soul, which we sort of get from Greek philosophy. And that's the idea that there is a kind of one eminence behind everything. So all human beings, all animal, plant, earth life has a, a soul to it. And that soul emanates from one particular source. Um, and that source would, of course, be a divine source. Um, so that's a play on the Islamic idea of Tawheed, which or oneness. Um, so with this particular book, I, it's really interesting. So uh, this particular one that I work from, it was uh, it was it was taken. So it's a multi-religious story. So it was taken from. It was taken from a Jewish translation. So this novel, it's written obviously by Iraqi Muslims, but it becomes a hit in the Jewish communities. And the Jewish communities translate it into Hebrew, it then gets translated into Latin and then into French. And so it ends up in Europe in the 12th century. And the one I'm working from is based on Hebrew translation. Um, but it's a um, what the people who sort of translated this particular version wanted Muslim inputs. They hired an Iranian philosopher to help them with it, and also they got they hired an Indian illustrator to illustrate the cover. Uh, and so we'll go into the story quickly. So essentially, here's the story: a ship on its way to I don't know how to pronounce that Masa. This one I think comes from the Hebrew Bible. It's carrying the creeds of over 70 nations, so that's an old biblical concept, and it essentially just means all of humanity. So this is important because it's kind of saying all of humanity is on this ship. It's not about one race or one nation, it's all humanity. And they get washed ashore, and they end up on this island. And this island is full of animals that have never previously encountered humanity before. And so when the humans first come ashore, they see this perfectly existing island with all these animals, and the animals walk towards them because they don't know anything about humanity. They don't know that humanity is something that might harm them. And they sort of see to themselves, well, we've got this beautiful island we're on right now, and this is a beautiful opportunity. Here's what we should do. Instead of like working for ourselves, why don't we take 
the animals over? Why don't we colonize them effectively? Why don't we make them work for us? And they said, we won't be, we won't. And there was all kinds of different arguments flying around between the humans. Some said we shouldn't do it. Others said we should. Others say, yes, but we will be humane in how we do it. Um, what's interesting in this tale is it explores every single philosophical argument you can make about subjugating animals. And so the humans sort of have this back to forth and they decide we're going to do it. But what happens is human rule ends, the reality of human rule ends up being very brutal and the animals end up resenting it. And so the animals decide that they're going to not take it anymore. And so they go to the great spirit king, who's sort of the unofficial ruler of the island, and they ask him to bring, they ask to bring a law, what we call a lawsuit against humanity. And this lawsuit would, would be where they put forward an argument about the wrongs of what human beings are doing to animals. And all of humanity has to come before the court to justify why they've treated them this way. And this is really fascinating because you start to see the back and the forth of the arguments of humans say, well, you know, it's innate. Of course we're going to rule. I mean, look at us. Look at them. Our form is pleasing. Theirs is not. They, literally every argument you can think of is made. And the animals counter every argument with a, with a really good counter argument. And so it goes with us in that the court case by and large doesn't go well for humans so every argument they create gets defeated they try to use everything from divine right so you know god made us rulers of the planet um, and of course we're going to take over the animals because what we do is good for them and they counter that with their own arguments about that and it sort of gets to the point where the humans know they're going to lose the case and then they come to this one particular argument, which is this. And what is happening sort of in the background is the humans are also arguing among themselves. Some are saying, you should have known better. Why did we listen to this dominant group telling us we had to subjugate? Why are we subjugating them? You know, it's wrong, it's bad, it's everything. And so what happens is one human being puts forward an argument that says, I'm going to call this the non-argument. So human beings, we are not that different from the animals. We're very similar to them. We have one difference, and that difference is an argument against ourselves. We are born with good morality. We have morality. We know right from wrong. It's intuitive to us. But despite knowing good, we do bad. And we're conscious of the fact that we do bad. And the fact is, this is we don't deserve to rule, but we we are ruling. So this is a kind of self-defeating argument they put forward. But it's also the argument that floors everyone, because everyone is expecting a positive case for why human beings should rule. Instead, they get a negative one. And what's interesting is this plays into the idea of divine order and so on. And they say, well, even the animals turn around and say, well, we can recognize that human beings do have a wisdom we don't possess. But if they want to continue living with us, they have to change the way that they behave towards us. They have to actually honor our rights to be here. They have to not, you know, put us in cages, not force us to work. They have to live alongside of us. We will serve them 
not be enslaved to them. And so this is in the end. So when I when we get to what do we think this story is about, and I've really whittled it down a lot, um, and it was there was lots of interesting arguments in it, but it's a couple of things I think to take away from this. So it's a it's a challenge to the idea of human order and the right to rule. But it's also about this idea of natural rights. Well, the closest equivalent to natural rights that exists in the Islamic world. So in what I mean by natural rights is this. So if you think about arguments made, whether it's animal rights, environmentalism, these kinds of things, what's the, the argument rests on a kind of utilitarian philosophy, which says we should preserve the environment because it's good for us to preserve the environment. This is a utilitarian kind of argument. You know, we need animals, we need the natural world, because if it goes, our lives can't exist. This is a different kind of argument. This is an argument that says, if something is there, it has a right to be there. It doesn't matter whether it benefits you at all or not. This is the kind of philosophy that was going around at the time, natural rights. So a tree is there, it's there, it has a right to be there, it doesn't matter if it benefits humans or not. In this particular case, it plays on this idea, which is that human beings are here to not so much to rule, but to cultivate. So we have advantages to what we do. I know that in today's world, there is a tendency to sort of question and say, you know, animals, they're fine without us. And that's an understandable argument to make. But here, and in this kind of story, I'd argue it's a case for humanity because it recognizes something quite important, which is human beings do actually have a positive role to play. I mean, when I was sort of researching this, not to go too far off on a tangent, I started watching some clips about this I think it was, I can't remember which animal it was, but it was an animal in the wild. And the mother, and it was a mother, and it fell sick. I think it injured its leg or something. And it would have died. And, but what was interesting is it didn't die because human beings intervened in the natural world. They took the animal away. They repaired the leg. They sort of allowed the animal to get better. And then they returned it back to the wild. And that's the kind of thing I think where a case for humanity can be made. I think I think there is a choice here about whether you do good or whether you do bad. And that's part of what this story is about. And the last thing I'd say is what this story is about is to me, it's about the nature of crisis itself. So for me, we're living in a time now of extreme crisis with COVID and we're questioning what our values are, what we want to do. And for me, this sort of story is a way of thinking about how to get through a crisis and come out the other end and what we should be thinking about. And I want people to realize, of course, that this is not a new thing. Ninth century Iraq was having the same issues. Thank you. Usman, Ahmed, Maha, Nihad, uh, thank you so much. That was great. I hope everybody has a nice weekend. Um, there's a lot to dig into. If anyone wants to deliver a presentation, we're hosting a presenter's workshop in a couple weeks. That's on afterdoos.com slash Zoom as well. Um, and yeah, have a nice weekend, everybody. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. 
We have new episodes coming every single week. Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find us at afikra.com for information about all upcoming events. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time and stay curious.